Uh, this is the 10th sermon in a series where we've been looking at the book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote this book to the church at Philippi, encouraging them to rejoice and, and be joyful always. I've personally been blessed. I think I have grown a little bit in being joyful uh, through, uh, through the sermon series. And today we're going to be looking at the last chapter of the book of Philippians, chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. It's going to come up for us on screen. Allow me to read, read the verses out for us. Philippians 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with, the gospel, with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, which is what we just did during worship. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to draw three things for us from this passage. First, joy in the mess and peace over anxiety. Second, how joy and peace combine. And third, the great assurance. Joy in the mess and peace over anxiety. How joy and peace combine and the great assurance. Those are three things we're going to be looking at from the passage. First, joy in the mess and peace over anxiety. From the very first week of the sermon series, we've been seeing that, that the defining aspect of gospel joy is not this is that it's not drawn from circumstances. We do not, as followers of Jesus, draw joy from circumstances, but we bring the joy of Christ into the circumstances in our lives. The reality, the truth is we keep forgetting this and we keep slipping back over and over again to drawing our joy from circumstances, which is why Paul is doing something really surprising in this passage. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There's something really surprising in the statement. This statement is actually an admonishment. Earlier in the book, Paul um, talks about joy, calls people to joy in four different ways. Uh, there's an invitation to joy. We've seen Paul call people to say, you, we can be joyful. He invites people to be joyful in Christ. Paul also talks about joy as an assurance. When we are in Christ, joy is a gift of the Spirit. We enjoy uh, be, being joyful. Paul also exhorts people to be joyful. 
But this verse, verse 4 that we just read is different from all the other three. In this verse, Paul is actually admonishing the church at Philippi to be joyful. He's correcting the church to be joyful. He's rebuking the church and saying, you should be joyful. Look at the passage that we read. There's this conflict that is happening between two good women. And these women are, labor, are leaders. Uh, these women have been co-laborers with Christ in the gospel. But there is this really messy conflict. Imagine in a, in a church when, when two leaders uh, are having a major conflict. Everybody in the church is going to be looking at this conflict. And they're going to be, they're going to be fixated on this conflict. That's exactly what was happening in the church at Philippi. And Paul is admonishing them. He's saying then don't get fixated on the conflict. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So the call to joy, the call to rejoicing in this verse is actually not an invitation, not an assurance, not an exhortation, but it is an admonishment. It is a rebuke. It is a correction. Don't we need this admonishment to be joyful? Don't we need it too? How we keep forgetting to be joyful in Christ. And, and so as a pastor this morning, I am delighted to bring Paul's rebuke and Paul's admonishment to rejoice to all of us. I bring this to my heart first then I bring it to all of us. We need this rebuke. We need this correction ever so frequently because we keep forgetting that we do not draw joy from circumstances, but we bring the joy of Christ into the circumstances of our lives. We began the series on rediscovering joy in, in mid-June. So we've been, you know, with a break here and there, we've been walking through this for about three months now. How have you been joyful in the difficult situations in your life in these past three months? Take a moment. Let, let's take a moment to just, just look at, I'm sure we've all had difficult situations uh, in our life. If you haven't had any, man, you are truly, truly blessed. Uh, I've had a few, more than a few actually. Look back at the difficult situations you faced in your life. How have you been joyful in these situations? And as you reflect on that, consider this question too. Could we have been more joyful in these difficult circumstances? Sometimes we need an exhortation to be joyful. Sometimes, as Paul is doing in this passage, we need an admonishment to be joyful. Um, I'm sure all of us have seen children sulk, right? They, they don't get what they want or they get upset with something and, and, and they sulk. And, and, and sometimes seeing a child sulk is, is, uh, is so silly, isn't it? And the, the child will be so much better off if he or she stops sulking and gets on with the, with the joys of life. But I guess as we all know, when, when a child or even an adult sometimes, uh, uh, and I'm talking about ourselves, all of us, when we get into sulk mode, we lose objectivity. We can't see things clearly. We're kind of like that too. 
as adults. We we like to brood and we like to get into this grumble mode and, and, and we lose our objectivity. And sometimes, sometimes, not always, sometimes a loving admonishment is what can get the child or the adult out of that sulk mode. So quite often, sometimes, not always, we do need an admonishment to rejoice. And that's what Paul is doing to the church at Philippi. And I believe that this is what God is doing to us through his word. You know, as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, we pick sermons to preach. Uh, we think it's our choice. But the will of God is being executed through the choices of, of whatever text that every pastor in every church is being called to preach on. God is speaking to us. I, I truly believe God is lovingly, gently, tenderly admonishing us to rejoice. But the truth is, oh, we love being anxious. We love carrying the worries of the world on our shoulders. We love worrying uh, for, um, you know, 20 years ahead into our lives. We, we just absolutely, we love worrying about our careers. We love worrying about our families. We love worrying about our parents. We love worrying about our children. We, we love worrying about our nation. We, we just love worrying. So sometimes we do need an admonishment to rejoice. The worry is real. I'm not going to pretend and, and say, no, 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 you should never experience worry. That's not what I'm saying. We do live in a messy world. Oh, this world is so messed up. People are so messed. And guess what? You and I, we are messed up too. But the beauty of the gospel, the assurance of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that we can be joyful in a messy world. We can be joyful in a messy world. And that is the one big message that God is trying to communicate to us through the entire book of Philippians in the Bible. Some of us are probably thinking in your heart, ah, this is so hard. How can you expect me to be joyful when there is so much trouble in, 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 in my life? You know, maybe a few super spiritual people can do that. But, but I have so much trouble in my life. I have so much to worry about. How can you expect me to be joyful? Let me, let me say this in response. Every one of us, without exception, every one of us are highly skilled in being joyful in our mess. We are all, we all already have the skill to be joyful in our mess, but we are just using these skills towards the wrong object of joy. How many of us know how to party well? Right? right? All the singing, the music, the merriment, the food, the, the drink. Imagine yourself at a party. A partying is one way we learn to be joyful in a messy world. Tell me, do you worry in a party? When you're singing and dancing and having a really good time, do you, do you think about the worry of tomorrow? No, we, you've learned. You've learned the skill to put worries aside and be joyful in a moment. In that, in that moment. That's a skill you and I, we already have. It's just that 
the party is a long, wrong object for, for John, simply because how long can a party last? It's got to end. Doesn't it? How many of us know to treat ourselves to a good meal or to, to treat ourselves to a, a good shopping experience? We all know that. And in that, in that meal, enjoying that meal, and you know, treating ourselves to that meal or, 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 or buying something for ourselves, we have the skill of, of, of being joyful by putting the mess aside. How many of us know to do a holiday well? Here's, here's the point I'm making. We are all extremely skilled at being joyful in a messy world. We are just using the wrong objects of joy. So don't tell me that it's so hard to be joyful in Christ when I'm having so much trouble in our lives. Hey, you know you have the skill already. Just shift your eyes as, as the song said. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Use the very same skills we already have. Turn your eyes about Jesus. More than a party, more than a good meal, more than any of these things, there is something profound and something powerful about gospel joy. Gospel joy is always a buoyant joy. Buoyant joy. What do I mean by buoyancy? I'm sure all of us have had a good time at a swimming pool with this big ball, right? You know, you throw it on each other, catch whatever you do with the ball. Now, imagine this ball. You take it one feet into the water and you release it. What's going to happen to the ball? The buoyancy is going to make the ball come up. You take it 10 feet down. You take it to the floor of the swimming pool. You take it to the floor of the ocean bed and leave this ball. What's going to happen? This ball is going to rise up and up and up and it's going to pop out out the water. Gospel joy is a buoyant joy. Doesn't matter what the mess, doesn't matter what the sadness, gospel joy will come through, will rise forth through the sadness and break the surface of, of the water. We can be joyful in a messy world. It is our inheritance in Christ Jesus. It's not just reserved. Gospel joy is not reserved for a few super Christians. It is the inheritance. It is the right of everyone who truly believes in Jesus. That's joy in a messy world. There's also peace over anxiety. Peace over anxiety. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How we love being anxious. I mean, it's, it's been a recurring theme. Um, this past couple of weeks, Last week, actually, Adi and I, we needed to make a big decision. I'm not going to bore you with all the details of the decision. But let me tell you that I and, and Adi, both of us, experienced a lot of anxiety as we made this decision. And we, the decision is yet to be fully made. It's still causing us a lot of anxiety. And after worrying about it for, for a few days, I finally, Adi and I, we finally began praying frequently. It took us a while to really get down on our knees and start praying. 
And every time I prayed, every time we prayed, we experienced a peace in our hearts. But here's the funny thing. I kept going back to my anxious thoughts just a few hours after praying. Like we probably prayed together 10 times for this and, and, and every time we absolutely experienced God's peace. And then a few hours after, we are back to being anxious again. And so this, this experience kind of taught me three things. It taught me that human beings have a greater predisposition to anxiety than to peace. We are naturally drawn to anxiety than to peace because this is where my heart was going. I was praying, but two hours after my prayer, my heart was going, heart was going back to being anxious. Second thing I learned is that just one prayer is not enough. We need to be constantly in God's presence in prayer. The third thing that I learned from my own anxiety this past week is that Christ empathizes with us and he is faithful. Jesus did not mock me. He did not say, oh, you're a pastor. You know, you, you can't even stay for one hour after praying without going back to being anxious. He wasn't uh, upset with me. How many times will we keep coming back praying for the same thing? I've already assured you. I, I still be anxious. That's not his tone towards me. He empathizes. He is faithful. He is faithful. That's the first thing I want to draw for us from the passage. Joy in the mess and peace over anxiety. This is possible. The second thing I want to draw for us is how joy and peace combine. So we saw in the verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And verse 6, don't be anxious about anything and, and come to God in prayer with thanksgiving and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this passage is presenting joy and peace in Christ together as an antidote to anxiety. Joy and peace in Christ are together presented to us as an antidote to the anxiety of this world. This is interesting because the opposite of joy is sorrow and the opposite of peace is strife or conflict. But this passage is presenting joy and peace in Christ as the antidote to the anxieties we have in this world. And I feel this is so relevant in our context. I dare say that anxiety is our number one problem. It's probably been um, made more severe by the pandemic, but it was there even before. Anxiety is a seriously big problem in our time, in our culture. Anxiety is unmanaged fear. Anxiety begins with fear. Maybe even a legitimate fear, maybe even, even a genuine fear. We should be fearful about these things. It begins with, with that. But when we don't deal with our fears in the right way, and when this fee, when this undealt with fear lingers in our consciousness, it leads to anxiety. So anxiety is unresolved, unmanaged fear. Take your career. Just a lingering, constant fear. Maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you're not going to be able to deliver this on time. Maybe... Your colleagues are better than you are. Maybe you're not going to meet the expectations that the company has. This lingering constant fear turns into anxiety 
over a period of time. Or, or, or think, uh, think of your children. Just constantly worrying about the future of your children. What will happen to them five years later? You know, constant lingering worry. And before you realize, it has become anxiety. And I'm coming to understand that anxiety is perhaps the biggest curse of our generation. And we feel anxious because we have failed to enjoy the joy and peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And this passage talks about joy and peace in the same breath. They are different. Joy is very different from peace, but but the two are correlated. Think of joy and peace as two parallel rivers flowing one beside the other, but both have the same source of origin. Both rivers start at the same place. They're flowing, two separate rivers flowing parallelly together, joy and peace. And it is not just in this passage that the Bible speaks about joy and peace together in the same breath. All through the Bible, joy and peace are always two closely knit twin sisters. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace and joy flowing together. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Joy and peace flowing together. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Joy and peace flowing together. Two parallel rivers flowing beside each other, but both from the same source of origin. And that source of origin for joy and peace is our salvation in Christ Jesus. Our joy and peace flows from our salvation in Christ Jesus. The Bible always talks about joy and peace together because you cannot have one and not have the other. Because the origin is is God's salvation. The two are always happening together. So if you're not experiencing both, you're not experiencing either. If you feel I have joy in my life, but I don't have peace, that means that's fake joy. That's not real joy. Or if you say I have peace in my life, but I have no joy, that means that's fake peace, shallow peace. That's not gospel peace. Because gospel joy and gospel peace always flow together. Joy is the present enjoyment of God's presence. Peace is the future assurance of God's protection. Both of these together kill anxiety. Let me repeat that. Joy is the present enjoyment of God's presence. And peace is the future assurance of God's protection. The two together will kill the anxiety of this world. So here's the true test of joy and peace. If it is not flowing from our salvation in Christ Jesus, 
it is not true gospel joy. What is your ultimate joy? What makes you most joyful? Is it the fact that our sins are forgiven and we are accepted by God? Not only are we accepted by God, are we adopted by that we are adopted by God into his family? Is that the source of your joy? Or is our joy coming from, hey, I got a promotion and I got an increment? Is that where our joy is coming from? Where is our ultimate peace coming from? Is our ultimate peace coming, flowing from the reality that we have been reconciled with God himself by the death and the resurrection of Christ? Or is our idea of peace being on a holiday and sitting on a nice beach, watching the sun go down with a, with a drink in our hand and, and just being restful? Is that our idea of peace? Not that that's wrong, but is that all tennis? What is the ultimate source of our joy and peace? That brings us to the third and the last thing that I want to draw for us from the passage. The great assurance. The great assurance. How do we grow in this joy and peace in Christ that kills our anxiety? How can we cultivate this? How can we nurture this in our lives? And the answer is right here in verses 4 to 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious about nothing. The Lord is at hand. This is the key to growing in the peace and joy that we have in Christ. This phrase, the Lord is at hand, has two meanings, has two implications. Uh, should be interpreted in two ways. First, it means the Lord's coming is at hand. That's what this means. The, the coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming again. That's what it means. The Lord's coming is at hand. And the second interpretation, interpretation, implication of this verse is the Lord is near to us now. I want to unpack both a little bit as we close. First, the Lord's coming is at hand. The Lord's coming is at hand. Are we living our lives not just in the knowledge that Jesus is coming back again, but also in the expectation that Christ is coming back again to redeem us and to make this broken world perfect and beautiful once again? If we are living in the knowledge that the Lord is coming again. We are living a godly life. If we are not living in this expectation, we are living a worldly life. A lot of people have a mistaken idea of worldliness. And this mistaken notion of worldliness basically tells us that people who are followers of Jesus uh, have to be serious and cannot enjoy anything in life. But people who are not followers of Jesus can, can, can really have a lot of fun and they can enjoy everything in life. Uh, for a good Christian, uh, there is no enjoyment. That, that's a wrong view of worldliness. Let me, let, me, let me kind of just, we may have got this wrong. Let me kind of unpack this in a bit. Worldliness is not just about enjoying the things of this world, 
but even more so about the perspective with which we enjoy these things. Let me, let me just break it down and make it really simple for us. Worldliness is living only in the now. Godliness is living in the knowledge that the Lord is at hand. He's coming again. Let me, in practical life, let me, let me break this difference down to us. Someone who's not a follower of Jesus going to a restaurant and having a great meal is a beautiful experience and that's it. There's nothing more to the experience than the now. Great food, it looks great, I really enjoyed it, that's it. But for a follower of Jesus, he also, she also enjoys that great meal at a restaurant, but it doesn't stop there. That great meal at a restaurant is a pointer to something greater. It's a pointer to the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a pointer to the past when, when God was there with men, feasting with us, fellowshipping with us. It's a pointer to the future where one day we are going to be feasting with Christ together. That's the difference. It doesn't mean that you and I, we have a great dinner on Wednesday and come to church on Sunday to listen to a sermon like this and say, oh, that meal on Wednesday points me to Christ. It's not just a Sunday realization. It's got to be a day-to-day realization. Think of this in many ways. For, for, a, for someone who is not a follower of Jesus, great sex within marriage is, is something great. That's it. It has nothing more. There's no more meaning to it. But to a follower of Jesus, great sex within the, within the covenant of marriage is a pointer to something more beautiful. A true believer in Christ sees both sex and marriage as a pointer to the ultimate and ecstatic union that we will have one day with Christ himself. And so on and so forth. This is true godliness. True godliness is that we're not just enjoying things here and now, but we're learning to see how this points to something more beautiful. This is what the Bible says, when we, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. So followers of Jesus actually have a greater reason to enjoy the good things of this world that God has given to us as, as, as a gift. And even as we enjoy each of these small and petty things that are, that, that are there for us in this, in this fallen, broken world, our eyes are fixed and our hearts are longing for the joy of seeing Christ face When we live life as if the Lord's coming is at hand, true joy is multiplied and our peace can never be robbed from us. When we live our lives as if the Lord's coming is at hand, true joy is multiplied and peace can never be robbed from us. Let us sink in. Second, the thing I want to draw, the Lord is at hand means his presence is here with you now. His holy presence shouldn't be with us. 
his holy presence couldn't be with us because of our sins. And yet, his holy presence is not just besides us, but his beside us, but his holy presence is within us in the form of God's Holy Spirit. All of this because of what Christ Jesus did for us on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For Christ himself is our peace. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that should exist between sinners and our holy God. This is our greatest joy. The Lord is at hand. He is near us. So we can be both joyful and peaceful even in this messy world. We get to choose. We can live our life in two ways. We can live our lives with joy and peace in Christ or we can live our lives with the anxieties of the world. How have you been living life? How have you been living life? Which of these two realities that you're experiencing more tells you how real your salvation is? If I'm if I'm experiencing only anxieties, that means it's not that I'm not saved. That's not what I'm trying to say. It means I'm not aware of the reality of my salvation. I'm not living in the reality of my salvation. On the other hand, if I'm experiencing joy and peace in Christ, it tells me I am living in the reality of my salvation. Are we living in the reality of our salvation? So may God give us grace to repent, to truly repent from holding other things as more important than Christ. May God give us the grace to repent from our anxiety and may God give us the grace to let Christ fill our hearts with his joy and his peace. Let us pray. Father, we need you, Lord. I need you. Uh, Lord, what irony that I'm preaching this sermon on anxiety in a week where I have probably been more anxious uh, than I have in the past six months. And so I see in my own heart how my heart needs you, Lord. I don't want to live in this anxiety. We don't want to live in this anxiety. We would rather live in the joy and peace in Christ that are our inheritance. So help us, Lord. Help us. We need you, Lord. Come change our hearts. Help us to truly Turn our eyes upon Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.